the road to recovery. You might be cruising down it. A friend or family member lost on it. Or the road is, well, still under construction. Relevant Recovery Radio is about getting to that destination of normal health, mind, or strength. Now, Relevant Recovery Radio, here to give you the keys, Larry Weedy Kind. Hello and welcome to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your guest host today. My name is Heather Mosier. I'm filling in for your regular host, Larry Wiedekind. He's away on business. I was so excited when Larry asked me to do the show for two weeks because I immediately knew one of my guests who they would be. And, And so today I have on the show my favorite person in the whole world, my husband, Donnie. Hi, Donnie. Hello. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. And so I knew I wanted to have Donnie on the show with us to talk about recovery because I respect this man's spiritual walk so much and his story is so powerful. And so I just wanted to have you on, Donnie, because I love and respect you, number one, but you're just so powerful in the way that you tell your story and and how it went. And so talk to us first. Let's talk about what did it look like when you became an alcoholic? How did that start? How did that come about? I I wish I knew like the the formula, right? (laughs) So I could reverse it. You know, I I grew up in a normal like, well, I would say normal for today household. I grew up in a uh, divorced home. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about growing up for me was that I just never felt like I had a good childhood. I had what I needed, Mm -hmm. but I never felt normal. What I thought normal should feel like when I was in, um, when I was in junior high, um, you know, I had these friends that were the popular kids and I wanted to hang out with them and, and my mom uh, said, I can go to the movie theater. You can go to the movie theater. I'm going to drop you off and I'm pick you up. And, and, you know, well, I remember at like 10 o'clock, all my friends wanted to go somewhere else. And I called my mom from the payphone and I said, Hey, I'm going to go. They, they want me to go with them. I was so excited. They wanted me to go with them. And, uh, and she wouldn't let me go. And I remember they left and she came and picked me up and I cried the whole way home Aww. because they finally were going to accept me. Yeah. And, and I went through school like that where I just wanted to be a part of and, and I look back now, it's funny. I always was. Yeah. I, I was a part of. They invited I, you. I was with the crew. <laughs> uh, I just never felt that way. And, and as a kid, that is just the way I always, that's the way I grew up. And um, so I was a bad kid. Mm-hmm. I will say that. That has nothing to do with my alcoholism or the other. I just was. Just, I just rebellious? Yes. Yes. If you said go left, I'm going right. If right. you said don't hit yourself in the head with that hammer, I'm going to hit myself <laughs> in the head with a hammer. It's just the way I was. I know that because I'm married to you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so when I was 15, my mom had me going to therapists. And um, this was in the 80s. I'm dating myself a little bit. So <laughs> She took me to a therapist, and what I know now, I didn't know then, of course, because I was a kid, is that the therapist was recruiting for um, treatment centers. Uh-huh. This was the big treatment center boom in the 80s. So at 15 and a half years old, I went into a rehab, mm-hmm. and I was there for a year. A year. A year. And, and I wasn't an alcoholic. I was with kids that were really into drugs, and really, I, I, I had smoked weed and drank, and I was probably just a normal kid at 15. Dabbling in it. Yes. And they were panicked and sent you to rehab for a year. Sent me to rehab for a year, and I loved it. 
I loved it. It was all about me. Therapists wanted to know how are you doing today, and I was a chameleon as a kid. I, I could I could be in front of anybody and immediately just take on their persona, their personality. Yeah. And I remember that it was really like uh, the breakfast club for a year. We had the skater, the punk, the cowboy, you know, the cheerleader girl. We had all of that. And I could be each one of them when I hung out with them. Mm -hmm. Still had no idea who in the heck I was. So uh, I got out of rehab. I, sp I stayed for a year. It it's weird. Um, I went into rehab because I was a hardcore drug addict and I was there for a year. But as soon as my dad's insurance ran out. Cured. I was cured. Just go home. Cured. Yes. Yeah. Weird how that happens. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, hanging out with friends and drinking two weeks later. It just wasn't for me about drugs and alcohol. Um, it was really just a year's vacation. Right. You know. So I, when I grew up also, I should say that my, my parents divorced and my mom was a bit of a prescription drug addict. She mm -hmm. started out with, you know, Prozac, things like that. But then she moved on to... Hard stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I sort of, my brothers and I raised ourselves. I have two brothers that I was raised with. Um, and so I, when I got out, I just kind of went back to life. I tried to go back to school. Mm -hmm. You know, we had school and rehab, and I just couldn't. I, I just never fit in the school model. You know, where you you come in and you listen to what they tell you to do, and you're quiet and you follow instruction. I've just struggled with that my whole life. Right. <laughs> Uh, and so I just kind of went to life. I, I do remember that before I was asked politely to leave high school, possibly pending litigation, uh, my my mom and all my teachers sat around a table and they really like, you'd never expect to hear a teacher or a principal say, you know, we feel it's best for Donnie if he just moves on. Just move on. Just, hey, go, go get a job. But that's that's what I did. And, and it wasn't um, an intelligence issue. When I was out of school, you know, uh, mom said, you got to get a GED. You have to. So I went and got I was like, fine. And I go get a GED and I tanked math. But in the rest of it, I scored in like the top 90 and 99th percentile of graduating seniors. Like mm -hmm. I had a brain. Yeah. I just couldn't control my behavior right. at all. Right. Uh, and so I just went through life. I just went on. I, I got a job. Um, I got into my career around 20, 21 years old. And what is your career? Uh, I'm in IT. I'm, okay. an, I'm a network architect. And I, as I made more money, mm -hmm. I could buy more drugs and alcohol. This is literally, but I would have told you all that time that I just really liked to party. Right. Uh, I really did enjoy partying because, um, like I said, I've never felt kind of okay in my own skin, but you add a little alcohol mm -hmm. and I'm good to go. So how old were you when it started to progress into maybe more than just partying? I would say my late 20s. Now, I would say that you probably should ask both of my ex-wives <laughs> what they think. <laughs> my my first marriage lasted five years. And, and when I was in that marriage, she kind of kept the reins on. She kept me on the rails. I wasn't allowed to do cocaine. Right. You know, um, now I smoked weed from probably 16, you know, when I got out of rehab until I stopped smoking weed. Right, right. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back after this quick break to Relevant Recovery Radio. Don't go anywhere. We'll hear about Donnie's wild past. KPRC Houston and iHeartRadio Station. Welcome to KPRC 950. Real Texas. For real. Real, real talk. 
Welcome back to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your guest host this week, Heather Mosier, and my guest today is my husband, Donnie Mosier. So before the break, Donnie, you were talking about your journey into managing the way you feel in adulthood with drugs and alcohol. Absolutely. Party animal. Party animal. But at some point, it starts to become problematic. What were some of those scenarios? Well, you know, you... As I was saying, that, that when I was married the first time, she kept me on the rails. Yeah. I, I, was, I was allowed to. She wasn't happy with it, but I was allowed to drink and I was allowed to smoke weed. Right. She didn't like the illegal stuff. Uh, and then I, I got divorced and I was off the rails. There was no supervision for about two years. <laughs> right. And I got an apartment off of West Timer near the Galleria, and I, my brother moved in with me, and I don't think I was inside that apartment before 3 a.m. for about two years. Wow. It went, yeah. So I needed a new warden. Yes. I, I needed something, somebody to lock me down, and so I found my next victim. Wife number two. Wife number two. <laughs> and so the reins went back on. And so it, it, it had to be contained a bit. And so, you know, I tell you, I just was a partier. I loved to party. And, and, it, and it started with Fridays into Sunday. Mm-hmm. But then we would stretch the weekends. And we would start Thursday happy hour into, you know, Monday industry night. Right. Um, and then it, it started to really, really progress where it was drinking every day. It was, you know... And I would drink really hard. I, I loved, you know, like Crown Royal. It was that was my drink. Right. It was my jam. And I really started to believe that they put too much sugar in Crown Royal, <laughs> because what would happen is I would start drinking Crown Royal, and I would drink until nine or nine thirty at night, and then I would time travel. <laughs> And I would lose 9.30 at night until 6 a.m. when I woke up and have no idea where I'd been or what I had done. And what was happening is that I was, I was blacking out. Right, right. So, so Crown Royal's got to be the problem then. It was absolutely Crown Royal's you fault. you got to change it up. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> listen, I don't know what they're doing in there yeah. when they make Crown Royal. So I decided to, you know what? Vodka. It has less calories. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably going to fix this. So I would drink vodka. But some reason, when you add cranberry juice to that. It tastes really good. Oh, it does. It <laughs> does. And so I was right back where I started again. Yeah. And so it got bad enough that I would need to stop for a month or two at a time. Okay. I would need to just, all right, you know what? I'm going to take a break. I'm going to show you that I'm not an alcoholic. I don't have a problem because I'm going to quit drinking for a month, month and a half. Uh-huh. This is, and I would. Yes. I would quit drinking for... Now, it wasn't until I looked back on that time that I realized I didn't really quit anything because I would smoke enough weed to knock down a baby elephant before I left the door in the <laughs> but morning. But you weren't drinking. But I wasn't drinking. So these are amazing examples of what we're trying to see in our past, that you're trying to control and enjoy these substances when really you don't have control and you're not enjoying it at the same time anymore. Control was a delusion. Mm-hmm. And, and what I would have told you is, no, I, I meant to drink that much. But the truth of the matter is, you didn't. I, I, I wasn't. I, I, I had friends that could, you know, on a Saturday begin drinking around noon for a party mm-hmm. and they would get to this buzz level and just maintain it all day long. Right. Well, I'd start at nine <laughs> and by one o'clock I'm passed out and I'd have to wake up later and join the party because I would overshoot the buzz every time. Right. I love your story about the happy hour story. Tell us the oh. happy hour story. Because that's where it starts to become embarrassing. That's in my 30s. So drinking starts to become a problem. Um, You know, I work in IT, and so we would cut loose on a Thursday, let's go have a happy hour. But I don't know how to have a happy hour. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know if people actually like do this for an hour. I don't know what normal people do. But that just means that I'm going to go over there after work and shut the bar down, right? That's what the way my brain works. So I would, you know, it's Thursday happy hour. And so I would think the whole time, you know, like this liquor consumption is the problem. Mm-hmm. If I just go have a few beers, we're going to be okay. Right. No liquor. No liquor. And so I'm thinking like it's three o'clock. I'm watching the clock. Got to get ready to go. Okay. I'm not going to drink any shots tonight. Because Jägermeister. That's the problem. It's the problem. <laughs> I don't know what they put in Jägermeister. So I'm I'm thinking the whole way over there as I drive over, like, no liquor, no Jaeger, no Jaeger bombs, no Vegas bombs. I'm not doing this. Yeah. I'm, and I'm just, I've got it this time. Uh-huh. Park the truck, walk in the door, no liquor, no liquor, no liquor. I go to the bar. I order two beers. Yeah, right? of course. Because they've been there before me, and i got to catch gotta up. Gotta catch up. And then that waitress is really elusive. You never know when she's coming back around. <laughs> so I get my two beers, and I sit at the table, and I, once I get that first beer in me, mm-hmm. this two hours of telling myself seems to go out the window. And so I'm sitting there drinking, and somebody's like, hey, Jaeger bombs? And I'm like, heck yeah, yeah. let's do this. <laughs> Where was your resolve? Oh, yeah. and it's, it's out the window. Uh-huh. And here I go, another 2 a.m. Thursday night, and I have to go in, and... And the boss is pulling me aside and saying, hey, listen, you, you kind of embarrassed us last night, or this is becoming a problem. Are you sure that you should be coming to happy hours? Yeah. And I would do this over and over again, just sure that this time, this time, this time I'm going to go and have a few beers and drink like a gentleman. This time you're going to manage it. Oh. So how old were you when you got sober? 41. 41. And what did that look like? How, how did that come about? Oh, so I have this friend that I grew up with, and he was a wild, wild guy. And I, so I always, always behind him. I was the sidekick that, you know, he's wild, so I'm wild too, but I just was never as wild as him. And, uh, and we parted ways in the early 20s. He moved to Austin. I stayed here. Well, he came back. We sort of hooked up again through Facebook, started talking, and, and I went camping with him, you know, hadn't seen each other, a lot of catching up. But it was weird. He didn't drink. <laughs> And I didn't know what to think of him. I thought maybe the CIA had recruited him, and he was really just trying to check into my life. Can't trust someone who doesn't drink. I don't trust (laughs) him. My own brother. I I mean, I would have barbecues, and my own brother, because he wouldn't drink, I just didn't invite him. (laughs) Because I just knew that he was waiting for me to say something wrong to use it against me later. Right. So this friend of mine um, explains to me that he had quit drinking. And so I'm like, cool. Well, then you go do you, because I don't have time for that. Right. One of the visits, he came down, he asked me if he wanted to go to um, this meeting thing with him. It was a 12-step meeting. And uh, and I went because I'm a good friend. Yeah. And I wanted to support him <laughs> in his endeavor. I love that. I don't have a problem. <laughs> you I went to support s- him. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went to this meeting to support him, and there was all these, like, alcoholics in there. And I'm like, mm. I'm not that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not like you people. Right. Listen, I got to go to the bar. <laughs> Uh, it was literally, I don't know, months or a year after that situation that I realized he was taking me to my first 12-step meeting. Yeah, he was helping you. You were supporting no him. Yeah. I had no idea. And so that was probably around 40-ish. And, uh, and, and he and I talked when I was around 41, and he started to really relate how he felt. He started to really relate why he quit drinking and what was really going on, and it resonated with me. For the first time, somebody was telling me not just that they drank a lot, because that's what everybody came at me with. You drink too much. You drink too much. You You drink drink too much. much. Right. Why are you doing so much cocaine in a weekend? And what they didn't understand is I had to, because I couldn't drive otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) 
wow. you know, when you drink as much liquor as I do, you got to drive somehow. I'm so glad we did not know each other back then. <laughs> that would have been trouble. <laughs> yeah, so, so we went to my first meeting. We went to my first meeting. It's, um, I'll tell you, my first day sober, my first day sober, waking up in the morning and not putting anything in my body, I went to work. And I had a bad day. It was really bad because I typically, again, started out with so much weed that I could knock down a small family, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I had nothing in my body. And I went into work and I really acted a fool. I got in a meeting with all of my peers and a couple of project managers, and they were not doing business the way I wanted them to. Mm -hmm. And I went off. And several four-letter words came out of my mouth. Yeah. Really ugly. And... I said, that's it. I quit. I'm done with this. And I'm leaving. And the boss is coming in the door and he catches me. Where are you going? Come in here. And he brings me. He says, you owe me five minutes before you quit. We went into his office. And I'm just going to, I'm going to make a name up to keep people anonymous. But he brings that project manager in who I just cursed out. And they sit down and I just sort of lost it. I just said, this is my first day sober. And I think I have a drug and alcohol problem. Mm. And he said, well, um, Mark, and he looks at the guy I just cursed out, and Mark says, have you been to a meeting? Mm. So Mark was five years sober, and I didn't know it. And this was like God's way of saying you're in the right hands. You're doing the right thing. And that night I went to my first meeting with my friend. Mm. Um, And I felt real out of place because I'm obviously an upstanding you know, citizen, right? I have a job and a wife who barely talks to me and a kid who won't talk to me. I have all this stuff. I have a house and two cars and toys. Right, right. We will be right back after a quick break. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio with Donnie and Heather Mosier. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Speak. Well, not so softly. And carry a big smart speaker. Alexa, play KPRC 950 on iHeartRadio. You got it. Big guy. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier, and my guest today is my husband, Donnie Mosier. So welcome, Donnie. Welcome. Thank you. So incredible story, this this employer and this guy that you had just said not nice words to on your first day <laughs> yes. sober. Uh, and he's like, I'm in recovery too. Let's go to a meeting. And, and the manager said, hey, anytime you need to leave for a meeting, you go ahead. Wow. It was just amazing that I was just in the right place and didn't even know it. And you can see God orchestrated that. Oh, absolutely. Now looking back. Absolutely. And God and I weren't friends. We right. weren't even friends at the time. We're not friends at the time. So tell us about like your realization. Uh, how did this meeting thing so start helping? I went to this first meeting and I just, okay, so I had I had ideas. I had this belief system that alcoholics were the guys on the side of the road begging for change. They lived under bridges. They didn't have jobs. I thought that too. Well, as I said, I had a house. I had a nice house. I had two nice cars. I had an RV and a motor. Like, I had All stuff. the things. Yes. And when you walked in front of my house, you would think, wow, this guy's got it together. But you go inside, and there's a tornado in there. Mm-hmm. And it's the opposite of together. So I'm at my first meeting, and I obviously don't belong with these people, right? (laughs) (laughs) These dregs of society. Um, And they're sharing, and I just wasn't sure. I don't know that I heard anything that that first 12-step meeting. I I just was there. Right. Um, And this friend of mine really took time out of his life and either picked me up or met me somewhere, and we went to meetings together for, I mean, probably every night for two months. Mm -hmm. But seven days later— We'd hit a meeting every night, and some days later, I'm back at that same meeting. 
and and I'll again I'll use a name. It's, let's say his name's Gary, and I'm just not sure if I belong. Right. I'm I'm here because I know there's a problem, but I haven't put my finger on it. And Gary shares. He says, you know, I didn't know I was an alcoholic because I have a job and a, and, a, and cars and a house and wife and kids and. Uh, I didn't know that you could be an alcoholic with all of these things. And it hit me. It hit me like just it pierced me in my soul. Oh, wow, I can be an alcoholic and have all of these external things. And did this this Gary guy, did he explain what it was to be an alcoholic? At this point, no. Okay. At this point, no. All he really said was it, it just really got clear to me. And, you know, the thing is, is that I cried the whole way home. I cried all the way home. I cried at home. And it wasn't because I, I finally realized I was an alcoholic. It was because I finally realized what was wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic. Right. Um, all of these years, ever since that junior high incident in high school and growing up, I never fit in with anybody and I could never figure out why. I never fit in my own skin. I just never felt comfortable. Yeah. And suddenly somebody had helped me put the finger on the problem. Like, no, here's what's going on. You have this illness. It was later explained, okay, Donnie, when you want to, when you start drinking, can you control it? And I'm like, I, oh, no, wait a minute. No, every time I think I'm going to go have a few drinks, I end up shutting it down. Mm-hmm. My ex-wife and I went to this uh, wedding one time. And, and this was for her coworkers, and she made it very clear, you are not to be you tonight. <laughs> I'm going I'm to need you to be a normal person for tonight. Yeah. No more than two or three beers. And I'm like, okay, cool. Three beers, I can do this, I can do this. Well, what do you do 15 minutes in? Because I'm already three beers down. <laughs> <laughs> you have the whole rest of the night now. So what you do is you just sneak it for the rest of the night. Yeah. So I realized that I don't have the ability, once I put it in my body, to control it, that mm-hmm. it sort of controls me at that point. Most of the time, I could tell you, a handful of times where I had to control it and I did. And that's where my brain always goes back to. Yeah. My brain goes, remember that time? That I said I would have one beer or two, and, and I, I did. And I did. So see, I'm not an alcoholic. No, that was 15 years ago. <laughs> but I recall it like right? it was yesterday. <laughs> and then they explained to me, like, have you had consequences? And I'm like, uh, you know, as I explained, I, I'm in IT. And in and, and the IT area that I work in, I sort of have the keys to the kingdom of, of a company. And so when you get background checks, I mean, they're doing background checks, credit checks. My career can be ruined by an infraction in the law. And at 38 years old, I got pulled over, uh, let's say, possession of a controlled substance. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know this. I don't know if you know this. (laughs) But it is illegal to have drugs and a handgun on you. Who knew? I mean... have to do a lot of research to even know that fact. The man. So <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble, but luckily I had a good job and I could pay for a good attorney and I stood in front of the judge and the judge said, you're, you're not too bad a guy, I'm going to give you a break. You do one year deferred, mm-hmm. you got to see a PO and you got to you know pee in a cup and all of that. Right. And if you do this, you're done. Right. If you have one infraction, you're going to state prison for a year. Mm-hmm. So any Normal, Normal sane person. thinking person. And it's that sane thinking would say, I got to not drink for a year. And so, of course, I didn't drink for a year. Mm. Yeah, well, not. <laughs> what I stopped doing was drugs because I can't get them out of my system. And my drinking just elevated because I knew I could not drink 24 hours before I went to see my PO. Right. So I'm looking at the ruining of my career. I'm looking at prison time. And so you're looking at the fact that you're losing the ability to manage the decision to not drink. 
I didn't have a choice. Right. I mm-hmm. legit had no choice. I have all these consequences caused by my drinking. And a sane person would say, well, it's, the drinking is the problem. But for me, it was everything else. Mm-hmm. It, the job I had, the wife I was married to, the kids, it was everything but the drinking. Right. And so what these people in this 12-step program showed me was that I had this physical allergy that once I put it in my body, I have little to no control over the amount I'm going to drink. Mm-hmm. And I have this mental obsession because if I only had the physical allergy, then you just leave it alone. You just not drink. Right. But I couldn't. couldn't. I could not leave it alone. When, when I was given that information uh, for the first time ever, I was just in such shock and awe because it explained why I wanted to be sober for a long time and, and couldn't. I seemed to kept, I kept doing the insane thing and putting it back in my body again under this delusion that I'm going to control it different this time. Here's right. how. And, but that's the insanity of it. I really thought if I could just get it out of my system, go to a detox only and just be, you know, get it out of my system, that I would just not return to it. But my experience was showing that I'm insane and I kept returning to it despite the fact that I know this is bad and I shouldn't be doing it. And the funny thing is, is that I told you that first week in these in these meetings, I didn't know if I was an alcoholic. But when I look back now, I really was deluded. I was completely delusional Mm -hmm. because before I went there, I had tried everything to quit. I tried hypnosis. (laughs) I tried. I tried changing my brand. I tried everything on my own. But the beauty of that. The beauty of that and God's grace in that is that when I was ready, when these right people came into my life and said, hey, we can help you, mm-hmm. I went in and I haven't had a drink since. And that's the, the a beautiful miracle of it. So Donnie is what we call a one chip wonder. He came in and got you know one chip that's a desire chip to be sober and, and he's never relapsed and gotten another one. It shouldn't be a wonder. I agree with you. It shouldn't. Because as I said, when I, when I realized that I was an alcoholic, I cried for <laughs> days over it and it really wasn't a sadness. It was hope. Yeah. Now I know what's been wrong with me all of this time and, and these people are laughing and, and they seem to be genuinely happy and they're welcoming me wel- welcoming me in yeah. into the fold and they're saying, you know, to the meeting, hey, let's go to Denny's and let's have coffee. coffee. Let's mm-hmm. you know, hey, come hang with us. And you just latched on to the tools and the solution that was laid in front of you. You know, I went to a meeting every day and these people just pulled me in and they were talking about these twelve steps and how it's changed their lives and get a sponsor and really just do what we tell you. Yeah. Which is really hard for me. It's hard for an alcoholic you don't Again, take direction well neither do i yeah i don't even like acknowledge an authority in my life right mm-hmm. but suddenly i'm willing because alcohol had beat you into a state of reasonableness at that point and and yes. i wasn't in that state of reasonableness when i was first exposed to the solution and that's why i was not a one-chip wonder my late 30s i would lay in bed at night and think you know if i die in my sleep i'm okay with that so can you, you imagine just, that now you're just you were just tired you were absolutely i can't even out of that. ideas and uh so thank god you did get sober and I went into this thing full force because I just wanted what these people had. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you go into these meetings and before the meeting and after the meeting and you're talking and they're laughing about things that you can't even talk about in a normal in a business. Setting, yeah. Oh, we laugh and I learned that the hard way one time. <laughs> I'm sitting at lunch with, you know, everybody at work, all my coworkers, and I tell a story of, you know, the drunken days. <laughs> oh, and I'm no. laughing and I'm telling the story and I think it was of, of my arrest. And, and I stop for a moment and I look around and they are, their jaws, jaws are dropped. Normal people are like, what? This isn't funny. They, they don't laugh about stuff like we do, right? But right. I think that after what we've been through, um, it's first of all, it's a miracle that I haven't had a drink in over eight it years. A it's a miracle that after all the things I tried. And so I just went into recovery 100. Now, 
I want to preface this. I have never done anything less than 150%. If I'm going to do it, I go overboard, yeah, whether yeah. it's good or bad. Definitely true. <laughs> you know this. But the thing about it is I, I know that when you came into the program to get sober, uh, you were an atheist. Completely militant atheist. I used to love to hear somebody mention religion so I could argue with and them. And so they're saying, "Hey, here's the the program, and in our and our solution is spiritual." And and so I know that you struggled with that at first for quite a while. I wanted to rebel. I didn't want to do it, but I really, really wanted to be sober. I didn't yeah. want to feel the way I felt anymore. And so you just kept doing what they told you to do, and and eventually you gained this uh, spiritual way. Yes, I remember one time saying, you know, like this God thing. I don't get it. Um, I don't think anybody's hearing me. And the sponsor was like, cool, then keep talking in the air. You do what I tell you to do. And right. I just went, okay. All right. And I went did these actions that I didn't understand. And the miracle happened. So we'll be right back with this miracle. Two miracles here uh, on Relevant Recovery Radio. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. While your wife may brush you off, don't worry. There's one powerful woman who hangs on to your every word. Alexa, play KPRC 950 on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Relevant Recovery Radio. This is your guest host, Heather Mosier, and our guest today is my husband, Donnie Mosier. Hello. Hello. And so you get you get sober, you decide you're willing to do this spiritual program. So I want to ask you, from the day you got sober, that very uncomfortable <laughs> day one, how long was it? How quickly did the desire to drink leave you? For me, it was around the fifth step. Which was how much time? Mm, five or six weeks, maybe. Okay. I, I fell into a group of people that believe that you, when I stopped, the day I stopped drinking, mm -hmm. a solution to feel comfortable is gone. Right. Right. Because even though drinking caused me so much harm, it was still that momentary comfort. It's very uncomfortable to just remove the drink or the drug and have to, having to sit with yourself again. <laughs> and they explained it to me. They said, like, here's the solution, these 12 steps and yeah. get connected to God. Why would we take them and put them on the dashboard and wait for them later? Right. Like, you need to do this quickly. And so we did it quickly. I was through all 12 steps in around 60 days. And my sponsor said, cool, now go find somebody else to help. Now yeah. you go sponsor someone. Yep. Uh, and I got my first sponsee around 90 days, mm -hmm. and I have had one, two, I mean, sometimes nine guys in the book at the same time since. Right. And my experience is the same. I fell into people with the solution, armed with the facts about alcoholism. I got through the process in two months, mm -hmm. and I had my first sponsee in two months. And, and so fast forward, you're almost five years sober, and I'm 18 months sober, and that's when we meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I wasn't looking for a wife at the time. That's the funny part. Victim number three. I, yeah, I, I, you know, I did so well with the first two. Um, yeah, I, I actually had alternate in, in an alternate motive. You know, I'm yeah. coming out of a marriage, and I'm going to go. Uh, be wild again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but what had happened in that is that I wasn't being a, sort of a good guy in sobriety, and you know there was no alcohol to excuse blame. anymore, right? I recognized that when I met you. Although we met in the fellowship, and I could tell that you really loved this program and you mm -hmm. helped a lot of people and sponsored. I remember recognizing that you were spiritually in trouble. 
and and that you needed to fix your spiritual condition or, or you wouldn't stay sober. And I told you that. You know, the thing is, is that I, I struggled with God for so long coming into the fellowship and I just wouldn't let go of some old ideas. Yeah. And it was around two and a half years sober that I finally let go of some old ideas. And then around five years sober, basically here was what it was, is that God was a word a word that I spoke to. Yeah. And I did all of the actions I was told to do, say prayers to this word, rely on this word. And and there's no denying that there was a power because I did everything I could to try and get sober before the fellowship and I couldn't. Right. So something had happened. But at five years sober, I had to find this power and it had to become real. Mm-hmm. And it had to become... And that was basically when I became a Christian. What I saw you going through at that time is something that I've watched many of my sponsees go through at different periods of sobriety, and sometimes it equals a relapse. I saw that you were very close to a drink during that chunk of, at five, when you were five years sober. And what, what happens is our self-will is our default, and we begin to rely on certain ourself around certain things and, and we ignore a spiritual compass or we ignore God around things that have nothing to right. do with drugs and alcohol. Nothing. Well, I mean, think about it. So um, this power, right, this this God of my understanding, which wasn't much when I came in, this un- my understanding, had removed the drink problem for me. I, I hadn't thought about a drink in five years. And so this miracle had happened. But listen, thank you for taking the drink away, but I got (laughs) this this over over here. here. Mm -hmm. That's right. I'll handle the showing up as a good employee, and I'll handle the showing up as a good husband and a father and a friend. (laughs) Now, keep in mind that I tanked every one of them, and I wasn't good at it, and I had no power in those realms. But at five years, it was time to either really tap into a real power. Mm -hmm. And and what I want to clarify for everyone is I'm not telling anyone they have to be a Christian. Right, right. What God had to become for me was was something tangible and real. Mm-hmm. When I say a prayer, I have to know that that power is listening and that I'm talking to. And that you can trust it. And that's what happened for me. And my life has never looked the same. I've gotten to watch you grow spiritually. That's why you're someone I respect and love so much because that early days when we were just dating, you did so much spiritual work around these issues that had nothing to do with drugs or alcohol. And I saw you went from someone who was an aggressive road rager Mm. to someone (laughs) who today drives like he respects people on the road and has patience. I've I've watched you be in self-will around food and then learn how to rely on God again in a deeper way on food. There's just so many cool things that we've got. We've been together since 2017. Almost four years. And married for two is that right? A little over two, <laughs> two. Heather. I never remember the date. <laughs> but look, here's the thing, and this is the joke I make, right? Because everybody thinks that when you're sober in a 12-step fellowship that time matters. And it doesn't. And, and what I know now is that God sent me someone with half my time but double my spiritual connection. That's me? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you have always sort of been my cheerleader for me to get more connected and be the, the spiritual leader of our family that I should I be. I had some major, major uh, come to God moments very early mm-hmm. in, in the first few months of my recovery. And so some of those issues that you were working out at four and a half, five years sober, I had worked out at three months sober. Mm-hmm. And, and so God's timeline is different for everybody. And, and I've sponsored people with more time and less time. But we get to walk this life together. We get to live this, this journey in recovery. 
recovery. Right. Instead of cursing each other out, now when you do something I don't like, I'm like, hey, you should probably call your sponsor. Right. Fighting when we when we have arguments. Maybe you should do some work around. Yeah, that. I think you need to write some inventory, sir. <laughs> your character defects are showing. Right. Like we fight completely differently than normal people. But some of the cool miracles that I wanted us to share with our audience today is like, you and I have walked through the journey of getting custody of my son. Yeah. And driving from Houston to Oklahoma City every other weekend for many months. Almost a year. And 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 we recently won custody of him. I finished off paying all my financial amends. Your your mother passed away. Uh, I was able to rekindle January. a relationship with my mom gave my older sister up for adoption before she met my father about mm-hmm. two years. Uh, I met her when I was 20, 21, but I was a, I was approaching being an alcoholic at that time, and I just chose not to pursue a relationship. But we have a relationship. In fact, mm-hmm. she and five of her seven children are at our house, at our house right, now. right now. And so the family gets restored. Um, these miracles continue to occur, and it's not all instant just because you're six months sober. Right. We, we've put in a lot of footwork of helping God's kids and helping other people find recovery all of these years. And, right. and then we don't have to worry about the other stuff because God seems to be restoring it. And now we have more family than we know what to do with <laughs> and I don't and I don't worry about this marriage because for the first time in my life I'm in a marriage where we actually put God in the center which was really uncomfortable and we, I remember the first time I ever prayed with you it was uh, I, I probably peed a little I was so nervous <laughs> I, it was I just but, but I want it but that's the cool thing that I saw how awkward you were you didn't want to pray with me or you know before bed or on meals and now you're you're such a solid spiritual head of our household that I know I can trust to just follow you right um, that you have become a very godly man absolutely and, and it's just and, and by no doing of my own yeah, let's be clear that's the, the only thing I did was burn my life right. down and and just I needed help so one thing I want to make sure that we get to talk about one thing that makes where I work which is Matthew's Hope Detox uh, it's in St. Joe's downtown Houston and the website is matthewshope.org and if you have a pen and paper I'm going to give you some phone numbers at the end but I want to talk about one thing that makes us very different and that is the microcurrent neurofeedback we do called ISIS. Mm. And so when I got this job and started being trained and seeing people come through our detox and get this microcurrent neurofeedback, I was amazed at the stories. And I kept telling my husband, you should really try this. You should really try this. You should really try this. And And I just thought you were crazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I didn't believe it. This is placebo. This is mental. You know, people just believe it works. And I'm telling my husband, no, I really want you to try it because you're fragile and you're going to have great experience. I had such a problem with that word. You didn't like me to tell because you I am not. I am a man's man. You are. You're very masculine. You are a man's (laughs) man. I am not fragile. But you are easily affected by the world around you. Sunlight makes my eyes water. Food changes my mood. You can't have caffeine past 5 p.m. Oh, if I drink caffeine today, Tuesday at 5 p.m., I'm going to be late for a meeting on Wednesday or Thursday. Like, yes. So I finally got you to go. Okay. And, and now... You go and do IASIS once a week or every 10 days for months. It has changed. I never thought that I would have the changes in my life. So I've been an intense person my entire life. I'm very intense. I can't help it. It's just who, who I've become. And my brothers are the same way. And so you and I would have a discussion, and instead of a discussion, I would just overpower you and yell, yell at you. I've and, watched the miracle oh. happen with you, and you are calm. It has calmed your central nervous system. It's just been a miracle. So if you are interested, our listeners, in getting ISIS, you can call our outpatient uh, technician, Brittany, at 346-980-9495, or you can call our detox at 844-AND-HOPE. That's 844-263-4673. Thank you, Donnie, for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next time on Relevant Recovery Radio.